Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Four o'clock and it is Jim Bartlett with you for two hours of Tuesday Home Time. Today, Palestine Remembered Program. It's a program that's broadcast every Saturday morning between 9.30 and 10. And today I'd like to replay a slightly edited version of the program 10 days ago, which focused on the infamous L4 declaration. And following that, um, NASA, who's one of the people who produced the program, will be talking about Palestine Day, which is tomorrow, and the Palestine Walk, which will be on Sunday. Anti-fascist issues with Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. The Oceanic Gold Campaign, or the Anti-Oceanic Gold Campaign in El Salvador. And we'll be looking at it from the, through the eyes of Canada, one of the com- countries which were helping the El Salvadoran government and the people to fight Oceanic Gold. I'll be speaking with Catherine Cummins, who's a, from Mining Watch Canada. And a visit to Afghanistan by Brian Tyrrell, who's one of the organisers of Voices for Creative Nonviolence in Chicago. But first, let's hear it from Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when as the goody-goody, long-haired, commie, black armband brigade say these no-proper-papers-are-legal boat people are true blue Aussie's responsibility, the Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, says, No, it's the PNG government's responsibility. And the PNG government says it is true blue Aussie's responsibility, so apparently no one's responsible. That'll teach him for trying to take advantage of our goodness and compassion. And then when the PNG government says, OK, we'll decide where they go, the Duffer tells them they can't do that because although it's their responsibility, they can't make the decisions. And maybe denying responsibility while making all the decisions really means, therefore, irresponsibility. But the Duffer says those who criticise his humane role to help these illegals are the irresponsible. Logic runs riot through all this. The Duffer and other sensitive souls are advised to keep away from construction sites following an outrageous finding by a fair work troubler was he no longer work choices just looks like it commissioner that swearing is a normal part of life on building sites. And even Bernie Reardon said the words copulating female genital, if you follow this, and I'm trying to handle this matter sensitively, was, quote, a common expression across all walks of life. Well, I'll be bleeped. Oh, sorry, listener, that slipped out. I I should have issued a language warning. Naturally, the BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter offshoot South 32 us nil to you is appealing the decision that reinstated a union, an evil union delegate, and the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Michaelia Costa Workers, is up in arms, righteously declaring a... Bullying behaviour such as this should have no place in any true Blawazi workplace. That's uh, construction site workplaces, Macaria. In the bloody, excuse me, I'm so upset, in the commission, this is bullying behaviour toward caring employers. 
No, the real Macalia we all know and love said hardly a day goes by without courts finding thuggish and bullying behaviour by the evil construction union. The foul language, of course, gets worse when that most evil, abusive and thuggish word of all, scab, is attached to the string of invectives. Must say I consider this use of the C word as a pejorative, as abuse, as sexist, and I'm sure the respectable company boards and their foremen, presumably almost all are men, foremen and the very rare women and site managers, oppose it for that reason and would never dream of using any of this language themselves. But a sacking offence for swearing at someone, usually a scab or a caring employer acolyte representative on a building site? Unlike the rate-rigging case currently being levelled at the worst pack bank in which tapes revealed what's described as expletive-laden trading floor culture. Now, there's no comparison between uncouth building workers who earn far more than uncouth workers should earn, proving again how evil their union is, using expletive-laden language on a worksite, where, let's face it, there's absolutely no need for that sort of thing, and a trading floor, where the pressures of transmitting billions of dollars per second across the world warrants not just the most reasonable, highly inflated salaries they earn, salaries, not common wages, but also such relief of the pressure. Expletive-laden language is a natural part of that very important world, a world of expletive-laden culture. Where would we be, listener, without the trading flaws? After all, here we are talking about couth, sophisticated contributors to making the world a better place for all of us, except the all of us who happen to be uncouth construction workers, where there's no stress whatever unless they unnecessarily get a bit stressed out by the potential for death and injury. But then again, that's no reason for foul language. All they have to do is raise their health and safety concerns with their caring employer and then just pay the multi-million fine for breaking the law. See one notion if that's that appalling Hoonsun so-called Battler's Bus lived up to its name and broke down in Rockhampton Thursday as that appalling continued her state election charm campaign. It made a loud hissing sound, which campaign staff at first thought was just that appalling who had seen a woman in a hijab walking past. She did use some of that expletive-laden language same day, although maybe it's also culture among parliamentarians. Probably used the odd expletive in describing the broken-down bus, but we didn't hear that bit. No, which brings us to... We never thought Socialist Party numbers cruncher power broker Sam Dasty are we doing enough for the rich would be would be the good in a week that was peace. But after neo-Nazis verbally assaulted him in a Footscray pub, Sam became the hero. And the deep intelligence of the gentlemen who just loved True Blue Aussie was highlighted by one of them, Neil Hitlerson, denying they were racist, racist as they told Dasty are we doing enough to go back to Iran, a terrorist, a monkey amid a raft of slurs. What is racist about what we said? Hitler son asked. Now, let me think. What is racist? Well, let us think, listener. It's it's obvious they don't think. But in fairness, racism did raise its ugly head. He called me a redneck, Hitler's son almost cried. And that's a racial slur, displaying his deep understanding of the subject. 
and that appalling exploiting expletive-laden parliamentary language culture. She attacked Dasty Are We Doing Enough, our week that was newfound hero, calling him a language warning here, listener, language warning, a smart-ass who was playing up the whole thing so he could sell a book. Appalling seems to know Sam hired the neo-Nazis as a publicity stunt. Meanwhile, she refused to join others at a local McDonald's for a bite to eat after the bus packed up because it sold halal meals. And of course, it was Sam Dasty, are we doing enough, who on election night jokingly offered to take her out for an halal meal, unleashing her great sense of humour. No halal! And we know she didn't avoid McDonald's for health reasons because she took refuge in a fish and chip shop back to her roots, so to speak, where she indulged in battered deep fried chips. On deep big political thinkers, following this week's US of the UN of the US of the world mass shooting, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor did not describe the white Christian ex-train killer mass murderer as a terrorist, because he can't be, but did explain mental health or of more likely non-mental health and not guns kill, leaving us to worry about Donald's safety. Then again, Donald travelled around Asia, leaving his usual trail of grammatical disasters, of contradictory non-sentences, either by mouth or the, or the twit that he is, including declaring he believes Russian big supremo Putin take out when he says Russia had nothing to do with interfering in Donald's election, and declaring, Donald that is, he he believes US ob security bodies when they say Russia had plenty to do with interfering in Donald's election. Uh, then which one do you believe? I don't follow. Both. The greatest believe ever, ever. As the rolling arguments rock back and forth about energy policy and climate change, a report that should put an end to the debate, settle the matter once and for all, turned up with the headline, Gas will be the energy source of the future. And given the unbiased, neutral source of this impeccably scientifically researched finding was OPEC, the cartel of petroleum exporting producers like Saudi, it's time those long-haired, commie, greeny proponents of unreliable, the wind don't blow, the sun don't shine, crippling government subsidies got back in their box and accepted the inevitability of business as usual. Because people like OPEC, the Saudi royal family, those not locked up by one of them, and the world's great fossil cartel corporations wouldn't argue that fossils are the future if they thought for one moment this may contribute to a bit of climate change. With equal selflessness, bloody huge profit and its poor ventured offshoot 32 none to you, 32 us none to you, and aluminium big polluter All Profit Co. have exceeded the very generous emission baselines allowed under the government's pay polluters billions brilliant climate scheme devised by a former big supremo who knew climate change is crap, crap. So as all those still claiming to be committed to the Paris Agreement are meeting in Bonn to sort a few things out, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluters, climate change practice lead, he's called, and he does a good job because they certainly practice climate change. Anyway, Graham Winkle, corporate welfare man, says 
bond will fail if companies that exceed their very generous pollution baseline are not allowed to keep exceeding and polluting by offsetting their exceeding with international carbon credits. Sensible solutions to climate change, if there is such a thing, by planting trees in Indonesia in other people's business, for instance, which they would have to plant at a pretty hectic rate to match the forests and rainforests being demolished by other responsible corporate fossils. Though finally, good idea when I think about it, perhaps those companies can plant trees in True Blue Aussie, East Gippsland maybe, in a quid pro quo commitment to the world environment. The quid bit does sound excellent. Told you they were selfless. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy and tomorrow at nine o'clock. It's good morning to Kevin Healy with City Limits. Hi there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilda. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah. That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Next on Tuesday Home Time, a slightly edited Palestine Remembered program from last Saturday week with the presenters Yusuf Al-Rimawi and Nasser Mashni. They dedicated the program to the infamous Balfour Declaration 100 years ago on the 2nd of November. I think talking about a turning point like this piece of paper that, like you said before we start uh, recording, uh, well, the beginning of the death of Palestine. Well, we should, just to make clear that comment up, Yusuf, it was the the Israelis, as we've seen, you know, Bill Shorten and um, Malcolm Turnbull are in Israel celebrating the charge of the, the Light Horse Brigade, you know, the last cavalry charge of history. And we'll get on to that later in the show. But the, the reality is the Zionists and the Israelis are claiming the charge a couple of days before the Balfour Declaration as the birth of Israel. And they've marched with horses and Israeli flags as if some 31 years before the establishment of the State of Israel, the Israelis were fighting with the Australians, as opposed to the fact that the Palestinians stood alongside our Aussie diggers to liberate Palestine from the Ottomans. I'm sure if one of the Aussie diggers uh, was alive and witnessed something like this, he won't feel that... No, it's an affront. It's an affront to to their memory and to to their sacrifice. So, coming back to Balfour, first of all, what is Balfour Declaration? What's the wording of it? There are 84 terrible words, Yusuf. This is the most historic betrayal of an indigenous people's rights as humans and their rights to self-determination. And, you know, when we read the words, and our listeners would know, there's never been anything like it, you know, an empire promising the land that it has yet to conquer. At this point, Britain doesn't own the land or hasn't conquered it and is promising it to a people that doesn't live there without asking the people that already do live there. This is the absurdity of it. People who don't deserve that land. So the the words are, uh, and this was on the 2nd of November 1917, and it was sent from the United Kingdom's Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour, and he sent it to Lord Walter Rothschild who was the leader of the British Jewish community, mm-hmm. and for, he asked for that transmission to the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland. And the letter says, His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil 
and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. You said before, you said this was the beginning of the death of the national aspirations uh, or the state of Palestine, but what it was, in fact, was the birth of Palestinian identity and nationhood striving. I mm. mean, we wouldn't mm. be here the, how we identify as proud Palestinians, Indeed. defiant in the face of uh, Western imperialism and colonialism. I want to shed some light on the word declaration because in Arabic uh, history books and media, we don't use the Arabic word for declaration. We use the Arabic word for promise. We mm-hmm. call it uh, Wa'ad Balfour, promise of Balfour. And I think to stop at the declaration from a legal point of view, one of the Arab historians uh, actually highlighted that uh, that declaration was directed more to the allies of UK and France more than the Jews, meaning that, as you would know, the, uh, the year before the uh, Balfour Declaration, the world witnessed another secret agreement, yeah, yeah. which is the Sykes-Picot Agreement in April uh, 1916. And it remained secret until the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, in uh, September 17, which is mm-hmm. six weeks before the declaration. So the allies of UK and France were surprised that, you know, these two had cut the pieces without taking into consideration yeah, yeah. that they had Italians, they had the Americans, and also the other promises that they gave to the Hashemites, the Arabs. And the declaration was a list of declarations. One of them was Balfour. The other one was the future of Cyprus. And the other one was what's going to happen to the Christians of Lebanon. So the, the British mm-hmm. government issued several declarations pretty much directed to its allies. What made that historian believe that this is more to the allies of Britain was that it was to a British citizen to Lord Rothschild, as opposed to the head of the Zionist organization back then, Wiseman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a British government declaration to a British citizen, to, uh, and that didn't w- have the word uh, state, but home for the Jews. Anyway, we can talk more about that in future episodes, but let me bring you back, Nasser, well, to... We should go back to what, where you were on, on Sars Pico, and just, just to elaborate on that, Yusuf. Mm. The Bolshevik revolution was the, the, this concept of, you know, the death of... Colonialism. When they exposed Sykes-Picot, which was a year before yeah. the Balfour Declaration, a year and a half before the, the Balfour Declaration, this was exposed to the people. And what the British and French had decided to do was carve up the Arab world amongst uh, protectorates to themselves. But we need to go back a year b- before that and to the conversation that was being had between uh, Sharif Hussein uh, of Mecca, the Emir of Mecca, and McMahon, the letters. And, and the reality is that the British were already had promised us independence. You know, the independence was promised to the Arabs if they fought with the Brits as allies against the Turks, against the Ottoman Empire, against the Germans. So, and and this is you know evidence. If you go to any World War One memorial, go to the shrine or any World War One memorial in Australia, and you'll see Palestine mm-hmm. on the memorials, as you will see Gallipoli, El Alamein, and all the other famous battles that were fought during World War One. So that that famous McMahon scene papers those letters with a promise that saw our Palestinians, Arabs, fight alongside Australian diggers to, to liberate Beersheba and ultimately lead through Allenby through to Jerusalem and on through to Damascus. 
But, but also my problem with the Australian in, uh, involvement in the commemoration of Beersheba battle, it gives the impression that the battlefield was Palestine and the armies were in Palestine. Mm-hmm. In fact, the battlefield was Europe and Palestine was part of the agreement and all they did was they cut the logistic supply to the Turkish Empire yeah. and then uh, the Turks lost the war. But are we talking about thousands of people who died in the war to liberate, let's say, Beersheba from the Turks? Yeah. No, we're talking about an army of 800 people and, you know, battles. And, and, and over two years, by the way, the uh, British conquered uh, or uh, occupied Palestine from Turkey. We're talking about two years, which means that they didn't feel that the rush to send troops to Palestine. So the battlefield was was in Europe. remained in Europe. And the echoes of war were in our countries. Just to paraphrase, the Britons promised us, then did a deal with the French, and then they went and promised us to uh, promise Palestine to the Jews and the Zionists. And it should be also noted that the, one of the strategic intents of the Balfour Declaration, because, you know, in 1905, Balfour was Prime Minister of Israel, you know, P- uh, Prime Minister of England, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And the Jews of England knew him as an anti-Semite. I mean, this guy was wrote and sponsored what was called the Aliens Bill in the House of Commons. Now, when the pogroms and the massacres that were happening throughout the Russia, throughout Russia mm-hmm. against the Jews, he sponsored an anti-immigration bill called the Aliens Bill to stop Jews from seeking refuge in England. This is Balfour. From and fleeing I, persecution fleeing in Russia. Persecution gets to the point, here we are in 1917, we need to get America to join forces with the Allies to help defeat the, the Germans. And so the theory was that if we can placate the Jews here, they can use their influence in the United States and bring the United States in on the side of... Um, on, on the side of the Allies. So that's a very important point, Nasser, and I think it brings us to uh, the reason why Balfour witnessed a turning point uh, from being anti-Semite to uh, sponsoring what could be the most important document Israel used to legitimize its illegal uh, existence. I think the role of uh, Wiseman, uh, personal role of Wiseman, mm-hmm. on uh, convincing uh, yeah, Balfour yeah. that the Zionism. Uh, is one thing, and Judaism is another thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, this also brings us to the core point that our conflict is not with, let's say, the Jews being no. the followers of a faith, uh, as much as uh, it is against an ideology, an evil ideology like Zionism, yeah. that sees itself superior to the landowners of mm-hmm. Palestine. Well, you know, the Palestine that Balfour wanted to turn into a Jewish national home, I had a Palestinian population of 600-odd thousand. On top of that, there were 60,000 Jews. 50% of those 60,000 Jews were anti-Zionist. So here we are, 30,000 people out of a total population of 700,000. So we're talking less than 5% were in fact Zionist. And Balfour was promising the whole of that land to people that weren't even there. Even the the roots of Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv started during the Ottoman uh, era. It didn't start as a result of Balfour. The Jews had access to Palestine, also, yeah. l- although limited access, yeah. but they were uh, given freedoms to mm-hmm. set up uh, their uh, kibbutz and to start their communities and live uh, and, exper- uh, and express uh, their freedom of worship and yeah. opinion within the mainstream pluralistic society that we call Palestine and yeah. is, will always be called Palestine. Mm-hmm. So to give the impression that Tel Aviv or any Jewish community mm-hmm. was a result of the British or, let's say, the Balfour Declaration is wrong. And also, you know, one of the, one of the things, you know, we've talked about in our Nakba shows before, we should not ever forget 
that by the time the British were ready to leave Palestine and hand the mandate over to the United Nations, the Jews, the Zionists, still only owned less than 6% of Palestine. That's in November 47. They stole the rest. Yeah. So even to control 6% of Palestine after 25 years of British mandate, after all the facilities and all the support and all the help that they received and all the complicity, actually. Mm -hmm. There's no other word to describe the British role. It it was a complicit role. Not just complicit. I mean, we should actually, in fact, go back and say the Palestinians resisted. Of course. As soon as Balfour came out, the Palestinians didn't want to take it down, lying down. Mm. And they endeavored to organize. The first Palestinian National Congress was endeavored to be, or was tried to be held in January of 19, just 13 months after the, the British occupation. And the Congress was a, was a desire for Palestinians to express their self-determination, and they wanted to make it clear at the outset. A delegation was nominated to represent the Palestinian people, and this was sent to the Paris Peace Conference, but the British prevented them from leaving Palestine. Uh, The British banned the Second Congress. The Third Congress happened in December of uh, 1920 and agreed to send a deputation to Cairo, and that's where they met with um, the colonial secretary of the time, Sir Winston Churchill. He refused to meet them. When he did meet them months later in Jerusalem, Churchill played a critical role in trying to sell the declaration to the Palestinians, tried to sell the Palestinians the Balfour Declaration on the basis that what was being proposed was a national home. Not the national home, a national home. Not a state. Not a state. Yeah. The Palestinians obviously were not fooled and were quick to voice, you know, their, uh, their opposition. And from there, that was the, the start of real Palestinian resistance. So the general strikes, the, the protests, the, the British wouldn't allow us to establish political structures. They started to jail our men and women. But we still mobilized against them. They decided to crush any opportunity they could of us building institution. That being the case, that's from the period from, and we'll, we'll, we'll just quickly touch on the on 36 to 39 years, if I know your expertise in that space. From Balfour to 48, any opportunity at state building that we endeavored to do was crushed. But during those three decades, they did everything they could to facilitate Zionist state building, whether it was in creating a proto-army, the Haganah, whether it was in the Land and Settlement Division, the Jewish National Fund, whether it was in the Jewish Agency, the entire process the of... The Hesedrut, the union, the, the library, the, libraries, the universities. The government in waiting was birthed mm. under the Brits, mm. all while they were destroying every fabric of our leadership and government and institution building. Let alone uh, crushing any form of resistance. Well, 36 to 39, as we know, and this is arguably one of the greatest anti-imperialist struggles of mm. modern time when the, the Palestinians rose up against the we occupation. We call it the Thawr al-Kubra, the Grand Revolution. For six months, the civil society in Palestine and the elitists, whether we are talking about religious leadership or political leadership, paralyzed Palestine in form of trade and actually punished the British mandate and boycotted dealing and working with them. For six months there were strikes and strikes and demonstrations and in fact our first national anthem was born in 36, the Mautini anthem. Ibrahim Tuqan wrote it and it it became the slogan of the six months grand revolution but uh, unfortunately it was aborted uh, later with the help of regional and even Arab uh, leaders complicity. uh, complicity. I also want to bring the role of bringing America to World War I and the role that the Zionist agency played in bringing America to fight World War I alongside with the UK, France. And the price for that was Palestine. The, and they, when America joined the war, it was two years after the beginning of World War I. 
And having kept their promise, having brought America to the world, uh, they returned to the British cabinet and asked for something because they didn't know that the world would take maybe 10 more years or something like that. Mm-hmm. So they wanted a receipt that you owe me. And that receipt took the form of the declaration. And that's another driving force be- behind the Balfour Declaration. So here we are, the end of the 36 to 39, the, the great the great revolt. The, and many of the Israeli the housing demolitions, administrative detentions, these were, you know, learned off the Brits. And this is the way the Brits dealt with the Palestinians during that time. And they're still being instituted today, 70 years later, you know, just to the barbarity of the the Israeli uh, mentality. But the challenge, well, the fact that we weren't able to defend Palestine in 1948 is as a direct consequence, A, of the institution building and facilitation that the British enabled the Zionists to prepare for 48 decades out, but also the complete and utter destruction of our leadership, the cohesion of our society, that we were not able to defend Palestine in 1948. Mm. Because as uh, as naive and uh, silly the Israeli uh, suggestion that, you know, we were given a UN vote in 47 and in May 48 we established a state as if, you know, in six months you could build everything you need mm. to start a state and declare yeah. it and then you have recognition within minutes with all uh, the... Uh, the poor communication in 48, you have the Soviet Union recognizing uh, Israel even before America yeah. within minutes in 48. So to fool us that, you know, it took us, you know, we are the miracle that, uh, you know, we turned desert into these gardens, dismisses the fact that it took three decades of systematic pouring of resources towards one Money, side. human resources. You just name it. Yeah, yeah. Any form of resources, yeah. let alone lobbying, let alone uh, arms into creating institutions to the future state of Israel. Well, the challenge we've got is that, you know, rather than uh, looking upon it with shame, the Balfour Declaration, in Britain today, they are celebrating the Balfour Declaration. Benjamin Netanyahu is on his way to meet with Theresa May and they'll be having an imperial dinner or wherever they might have that in, in, in London. Uh, one of the great things is the huge uproar that the Palestinian Solidarity Movement has been able to, to gather in London. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn of the Labour Party has refused an invitation to attend and said he would not be celebrating the Balfour Declaration, and rightly so, because, you know, we coming back to the Balfour Declaration... And these salient words that are still 100 years later, not honoured. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. Here we are, uh, Yusuf, you and I are Palestinian. We've been prejudiced. We've lost our civil and religious rights to our homeland, the birthplace of our fathers. And 100 years later, and they want us to celebrate. So today's reality is a breach even to the standards set by the declaration itself, Mm. let alone human rights or ethics or uh, international law. If Britain was to hold itself to be a moral entity, if it was to hold itself, I mean, aside from the crimes in Palestine, you know, with the, the uh, Britain's colonial crimes across the world couldn't be counted, whether it be to our indigenous people in Australia here today or, you know, the peoples of India or Bangladesh or all over the world, Singapore, Malay, etc. The least they could do is acknowledge the historic their his, uh, and moral ob- responsibility for the damage caused, the millions of deaths, the millions of refugees. They could issue an official apology. They could in- immediately recognize the state of Palestine. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that wouldn't be too hard for them to do, you know, uh, as a minimum. Um, they could institute reparations, compensation. The, yep. w- the world has paid thousands of times over for what Germany has, for the, what they did to in France and Poland to, to the Jews. We should be afforded the same rights. 
And then, uh, most of all, doing its duty as a permanent member of the United Nations in ensuring that Israel upholds international law. If nothing else, just make these bastards stop killing kids, stop stealing land, should not be hard. However, they're doing everything opposite, and Theresa May saying that they will celebrate Belfort with pride. It's disgusting. I want to uh, read something from uh, Facebook, basically, one of my friend's uh, comments. I think I like uh, this uh, post. England had as much right to promise Palestine to the Jews as Jamaica would have to promise Japan to Ireland for (laughs) any reason whatsoever, in terms of rights. We laugh, Yusuf, but that's how absurd it is. Increasingly, and this this is the thing... That unites us. You know, there isn't a Palestinian. It's probably about the fifth word we learn. Mama, Baba, Balfour, yeah? With all that, with, um, you know, a hundred years of, uh, of brutality and ethnic cleansing and everything that we have suffered. And, and we started the show talking about it, Yusuf, was the concept of statehood of Palestine died then. But it was also the birth of Palestinian nationalism. You know, mm. we take it and we look back and say, I wouldn't want to be anything else other than a Palestinian. I've traveled a fair chunk of the world and met, you know, many different people from many different countries. But the thing that so inspires me about Palestine, I'm sure we'll hear more about it from Rob when he gets back in a couple of weeks, is that have a look at Zionism and have a look at the state of Israel and everything it has. You know, whether it's wealth, whether it's prominence, they can get our prime minister and our leader of the opposition over to celebrate a battle with, you know, a mock charge with Israeli flags that didn't exist, hmm. didn't exist, didn't 31 exist. years before the state of yeah. Israel existed, you know, this entire Disneyland experience that is the state of Israel in 1917, they can command such attention, he can then fly to the, you know, to Britain, the halls of Britain, and, you know, Theresa May said, what a fantastic thing, we're joined by our Prime Minister, with all of that, nuclear weapons, submarines, Money, Sheldon Anderson, billionaire casino magnate in America, buying a newspaper just to promote Benjamin Netanyahu, yeah? Spent a hundred million dollars on Mitt Romney against Obama in his second thing to try and get Obama out because Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, you know, he couldn't possibly be just an American. Even though that Barack Obama was as Zionist as anyone else. 38 billion US dollars in 10 years. Nobody had ever given him that much money. He spent a hundred million dollars on a losing bet to get uh, Obama out in his second term. With all that power, arsenal, guns, tanks, all that, and the Palestinians haven't given up. They're scared shitless. They're like, you know, all it take to defeat these people. They don't realize we are indefeatable. The concept, and you know, Yusuf, we had dinner on Monday night and a friend of ours joined us, and she spoke about her own first visit back to Palestine. She's a, a, a gorgeous young lady, but she looks like us. You know, she's an other. Here, she's an other. And she spoke about her personal journey and going to Palestine and just being one of us, being home. And she was trying to explain... Um, Even the small details, something the, like the za'atar, the smell of za'atar in the morning. Just seeing the, curly, her curly hair, which she had always been somewhat shy about or not really she stood out, stood out. It stood out her cousins had the same curly hair and it was that reconnection to earth yeah and she described that we're talking about like the movie in avatar where having been torn from the land having your roots reattach organically and this is what zionism doesn't understand is that our roots are in that soil they cannot understand why we haven't given up because they would have given up but that's because their roots aren't in that land. 
and that's because the color of the land doesn't look like the color of their skin. They don't know that in two weeks uh, our uh, young uh, kids are going to sing the national anthem and our uh, community... We should say 15th of of November, 5 p.m. at Federation Square, Palestine National Day. And the Palestinian community will celebrate its national day in form of reminding Israel and its friends and the world that we have not forgotten and we will never forget and we will keep the strive even even if we have not as strong friends as Israel does we value every form of support we look at it as this is our driving force to continue and mm-hmm. in addition to our father's uh, legacies mm-hmm. and memories so we will not forget and yes, yes this year marks the 100 year anniversary of uh, Balfour decla- uh, Declaration, but the day will come, will come yeah, that we will look at this document and we will say that we have liberated Palestine absolutely. despite this century of colonization and despite all this statelessness and um, inshallah that day will not be very far away from today. Well, we should remind our listeners, Yusuf, uh, these are the two great lies. Number one, a, a land without people for people without a land, lie debunked. Number two, the old will die and the young will forget. Well, we're the embodiment of the fact that that hasn't happened. 15th of November, 5 p.m. Federation Square, Palestine National Day. We'll be raising the flag again. Uh, the 19th, the Sunday, is the Run for Palestine, runforpalestine.com.au. And on the 30th, we've got Gideon Levy, the uh, Haaretz uh, Israeli journalist uh, at the State Library. So you can find the details for all of those events at apan, apan.org.au. You have been listening to a slightly edited version of the Palestine Remembered program from last Saturday week. And the program is featured every Saturday morning from 9.30 to 10 o'clock with Yusuf El-Rimawi and Nasser Machni. Yesterday I rang Nasser to talk in more detail about Palestine Day tomorrow and the walk on Sunday. And my first question to Nasser was... Why is there a run for Palestine? The need for a run for Palestine because in the first instance we need to continually build awareness around the just plight of the Palestinians and their struggle for self-determination and independence. The run for Palestine is a great opportunity for members of the Palestine solidarity community, those that are, uh, are Palestinian themselves and other people of good conscience, to get together in an environment that is political in the fact that anything to do with Palestine is political, but also a very soft sort of opportunity for them to, to show their support and love for, for, the, for the Palestinians, and also a great opportunity for us to raise money. And this year, again, we'll be raising money for the Palestinian Red Crescent Society in Gaza, as well as runners and walkers have the opportunity to create everyday hero profiles and raise money for Olive Kids, the Australian Foundation for Palestinian Children. Okay, start with the disabled Palestinian children. Are they disabled because of war or are they disabled by birth? We've got, in fact, three categories, Jan. So there are the children that are disabled because of just the will of God, if you will. There's children that are disabled because of the munitions and the types of munitions that the Israelis have used against the Palestinians trapped in Gaza. And then thirdly, and this is the, the largest number of those uh, children that are affected, these are children that have been uh, incapacitated, either paraplegics, quadriplegics, lost limbs, eyes, etc., because of the three Israeli assaults upon Gaza. 
uh, in the past decade since Gaza's been on siege. And what percentage of the children in Gaza are so afflicted? I don't have the actual stat, Jan, with respect to disarmament, but I can tell you uh, the UN released a report not long ago that said something of the order of three-quarters of Palestinian children have had some sort of mental trauma because of the fact of the Israel's ongoing illegal oppressive siege of the Gaza Strip and the three wars. I mean, you know, a Palestinian child who's under the age of 11 has never had access to the outside world, never lived a, a normal life, and has suffered through not only the brutal siege but three horrific first world power onslaught onto uh, a captive civilian population. And of course many of the children are malnourished because of that blockade and that must have absolutely physical and mental aspects to it. Absolutely, Jane, you're right there. One of the Israeli ministers, they calculated the calorific intake required to keep the population hungry but not starving. An Orwellian term that only enough food is allowed to enter Gaza as to ensure a famine doesn't occur, because that would be bad PR for the Israelis, but not enough to ensure that people are uh, adequately fed. And, you know, when over 80% of the population are refugees and descendants of the Palestinians ethnically cleansed in the 1948 war of independence or creation of the State of Israel, you know, these are people without opportunities to farm lands, they haven't got opportunities, you know, to build businesses, to export because they're in an open-air prison. One of the terms, I remember reading an article some time ago, average height, the average weight of, you know, a Palestinian child in Gaza is significantly less, of the order of 40 and 50% less than any child in the Western world. And in fact, the, the high mortality rates of children has led to a term being created by medical bodies called a failure to thrive and what that means is children just dying due to malnourishment whether it's a challenge with a a woman being able to create enough breast milk or opportunity for to get the sort of nutrients for a child to develop properly in the womb or then after after birth. What's the role of Olive Kids? Olive Kids was created almost eight years ago as well in fact the theory was that we would create a charity that got DGR, tax deductibility status, in in Australia and that we would be able to raise funds in Australia for Palestinian projects. And so, you know, today we sponsor almost 250 children, very similar to the World Vision models, you know, $50 a month, uh, and, you know, get regular communication from the children back to the sponsor family. And that money helps orphans, uh, A, pay for their care whilst they're in the orphanage, but also we have a program that allows for some of those monies along the sponsorship journey to be saved for the child so when they turn 18 they actually have some money to go into adulthood with. Well you've explained where the money goes to. What have people got to do prior to Sunday and then on Sunday? Well ideally we'd like your listeners Jan to go to runforpalestine.com.au runforpalestine.com.au and on there they'll be able to register whether they're in Melbourne, Sydney, Perth or Adelaide. We've got four runs happening this year, so almost fully nationally. And they'll be able to, to uh, register for a run there. They can also choose to make a donation there. And they can also there choose to sponsor a runner or if they endeavour to uh, participate, set up their own fundraising page. They can also just go to everydayhero, one word, everydayhero.com.au. And if they search for Olive Kids, they'll find our charity page in there. 
and they can make a, uh, a donation and um, they'll get a tax deductible receipt so they'll be able to claim back that in their tax return next year. And what happens Sunday? And on Sunday, we we're hoping people get there around sort of 10 o'clock. Registration's open from 10. Um, and the run heads off at 10.45. And then that generally takes between the, the runners, the walkers, the one lap and the two lappers, uh, somewhere between sort of 35 to 45 minutes to finish. And we have three different food trucks. We've got an ice cream truck. We've got face painting, a petting zoo. We've got some music and some dub care. We've got a couple of stalls as well. So a, a great family... Um, atmosphere and a great opportunity for people of good conscience to gather and come along and see um, Palestine at its finest. And before we go on the, the run on Sunday, there's Federation Square on Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, Wednesday afternoon 5pm. This is our second flag day. That's what we call it, Palestine National Day. We are celebrating the historic occasion in 1988 when Yasser Arafat and the Palestine National Council in our 19th PNC uh, read the declaration and declared the state of Palestine. From 5pm at Federation Square on Wednesday, we'll have some speeches. Our ambassador, I'm also very excited that we'll be having Ludi Wiggins, who's a, uh, an Australian Palestinian who represented Australia in the Olympics. She'll be giving a, a short talk, as well as Meher Maghrib, who's the uh, editor of the Foreign Correspondent, who is uh, the age in Fairfax, so he'll be also talking. We'll have uh, a flag raising. There'll be eight huge Palestinian flags flying over. Federation Square and we'll also raise one of those flags and they'll be up for 24 hours and then after that we've got a couple of versions of the Palestinian National Anthem one of them sung by some children another by a professional band the, the 48 band, they'll be singing as well, they're a professional Palestinian Arab band um, they'll be performing all afternoon or uh, afternoon, early evening as well as we've got a, a, a DJ as well DJ Mary, she'll be um, playing music as well, so there'll be dubka and there'll be some stalls so people can buy Palestinian food and dubka and zakat and olive oil. I'm almost 60 years old, Jan, and last year's Palestine Flag Day was my favourite Palestine activity other than visiting Palestine in all my time. It was just a really great family feel and, and you know, the singing and the dancing and the feeling of um, normalcy, you know, that we're just like everybody else was, was really profound. Federation Square is a fairly big area and I know there's other things going on on that day. What particular part is it going to be? We'll be in, in the main forecourt, so we'll have the use of the stage, whereas last year we were actually on the, the pedestrian walkway. But uh, because of how big our event was last year, they, Federation Square insisted that we take some bigger space, which we're pretty excited about. So we're really hoping that we can get sort of of the order of 5,000 people there to really turn it into into a huge event. Well, a great week to look forward to. Oh, look, a, a great week for Palestine. And, and then following that Flag Day and the run for Palestine, we've just finished the Palestine Film Festival, Melbourne, that's been going nationally. And then um, one, of, one of the really exciting things from my point of view is we're hosting Gideon Levy on the uh, 30th of November at the State Library. So people can get uh, tickets to that on APAN, A-P-A-N, APAN.org.au. So Gideon Levy, an Israeli um, journalist, will be giving a presentation. Okay, thanks, Nasa. Thanks, Sam. Certainly lots to do to support Palestine in the next week and just reiterate, tomorrow afternoon after five, it's the Palestine Day at the forecourt at Federation Square and Sunday after 10 o'clock,
the walk, the run, the dawdle around the tan, and you meet at Lilisco. It's a horrible word to say, Lilisco. It's Tom's Block on Lilisco Avenue in East Melbourne, and you'll just be able to follow the people going there. I don't think you're going to get lost. And register and have a walk, have a dawdle, have a run, and support Palestine. And as um, NASA said, on the 30th at State Library, journalist Gideon Levy. Lots to do. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Eight Days of Solidarity with Refugees is a grassroots campaigning to support long-term detained refugees. Between the 12th and 19th of November, there will be vigils, film nights, a community picnic, a solidarity walk and more. Anyone is welcome to make an event or organise solidarity actions. Look at more info on 8 Days of Solidarity for Refugees.wordpress.com. 8 Days of Solidarity is a 3CR supporter. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. For months, members of neo-Nazi groups in Melbourne have been targeting inner-city Melbourne council meetings following the decision by both the Yarra and Moreland City Councils to discontinue celebrating 26th of January as Australia Day. It would appear that the corporate media, although in attendance, was not really interested, but not so a week ago when Labor Senator Sam Dastiari visited a hotel in Footscray prior to promoting his book in that suburb. On the line is Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Debbie, how do you assess what happened last Wednesday and the media reaction? The far right, in fact, um, neo-Nazi groups have been using a tactic of going directly into council meetings or pubs such as we witnessed last week with Sam Dastiari to disrupt 
and to intimidate and to terrorize. In the case of the Yera and the Moreland councils, they did that over both councils' decisions to drop January 26 as a day to celebrate. In the case of Sam Destiari last week, apparently they just went after him because he's Iranian and they hurled names at him such as monkey and terrorist and I I understand that their next target is to be Sarah Hansen Young I suppose because of her stance on refugees there's been a a big difference in the way the media has treated both those situations with the councils I mean there has been media coverage for sure but not in the way that it's happened with last week's incident with Sam Destayari. So it just appears as though the media, and I'm talking about the mainstream media, not the community media such as Tuesday Home Time, but the mainstream media is consistently looking for basically the, the hits. So they're looking for something that has some element of violence in it, in this case, toward a senator. While they did cover the council disruptions, they didn't do it with the same intensity and diligence. The thing is that whether it be the councils or the episode last week with Sam Destayari, they then go to the neo-Nazi disruptors to interview them and give them the airplay, whereas those of us who are consistently organizing to stop them don't get that same airplay. Probably one example is when you're a council, put out an appeal to the community to defend their second council meeting where they were expecting a neo-Nazi raid again, and we were there, we were there defending. This is campaign against racism and fascism and no room for racism. The media did come along, but because the neo-Nazis were scared away, that showed the power of our organizing, the media wasn't all that interested in covering the event or talking to us. That's pretty much what we've come across in pretty much close to two years now of the organizing against the neo-Nazis and the far right. In a sense, though, Debbie, do you see this tactic of the far right a way to get those media interviews? Well, I suppose um, that could be a part of it. I'm sure that that's what Neil Erickson from Patriot Blue, who did that raid last week and the raids of the council, that's certainly what he has in mind. What he does is he videos those episodes that he, that he does. He sends them to the media, and, of course, the media snaps them up. Mind you, I think that what is really... The main objective of the likes of Neil Erickson and the other neo-Nazis who do this is that they are flexing their, their muscle 
they are there to intimidate the, the community. And I think that that's the thing that we out here in the community should be taking very seriously is that they are out there coming to us. And while they've struck out at certain councils, certain local councils, or they've struck out at a certain parliamentary member, there's nothing that's going to be stopping them from striking us at whatever meetings we might be at or holding. I would imagine union meetings might be a target. So that's the thing that's the worry. But, yes, I, I, I do agree that that sensational approach to it is there to get that media coverage and therefore the platform. And also to recruit more to yes. their cause. And we think of the, well, there's just a few here and a few there and a, mm. a few more up the road, but it's not quite like that, is it? There are maybe not many groups, but there are groups forming all the time. Yes, they are. And, and you know, it's the Times that's doing this. It's as the, you know, economic collapse just collapses further and people are hurting more and more. And then while that's going on, when we have the likes of Trump in the United States or we have the likes of, you know, Hanson and Corey Bernardi and et al. here in Australia and really horribly atrocious government policies against groups of people like refugees, when all that's going on, then these groups that pop up, it's going to continue to happen. That's the thing where we in the community, whatever parts of communities we're in, need to really take that seriously and be organizing and coalescing together in stopping it because I found the events in Poland over the weekend as something where when you see 60,000 people taking the streets of Warsaw around white nationalist demands, it kind of shows where things can be taken from these events we're talking about now unless we stop them. And it's not just in Poland, is it? It's, it's spreading around to other countries. We've only got to look at what's, what's happening in the U.S. Mm. to be a bit fearful, well, very fearful of, of the turn of events. Yes, and this is where we do need to be looking beyond our borders to see where this is going, to see what can then be happening here, because we are talking about a situation, an economic situation that is global, certainly, and we are also talking about these far-right and Nazi groups that talk to each other. They are in contact with each other. They emulate each other. And when you see that these times are emboldening these groups, whether they be across Europe or in the United States and seeing where that emboldening goes, then of course the Nazis and the far right here are watching all of that. You're right. Uh, it, we've got to have that global view. And of course those of us who are organizing against them, we're watching overseas too and we're watching what um, anti-fascist organizing is doing. We're taking heart in their victories so it is a global thing 
Another charmer coming to Australia early next month. He's got a Greek name, but mm. who is he really and, mm. and why is he coming? Okay. Yes, that's, um, and that's all very significant and timely, given everything we're talking about. It's Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, Milo Yiannopoulos is actually from England, but he is now U.S.-based. He is a far right, he's part of that alt-right, as it's called, propagandist. He's a self-described troll. He comes out of the notorious Breitbart News over there in the United States, which is like a an alt-right propaganda website platform that's managed by Steve Bannon. And, of course, listeners would know Steve Bannon probably as Trump's presidential campaign manager and former security advisor and, of course, being bankrolled by a hedge fund billionaire named Robert Mercer. So this is where Milo Yiannopoulos comes from. He's a total opportunist. He's a total there-to-promote-himself kind of person. He comes across as a very brash, anti-PC provocateur, but he's actually a very dangerous person. He's been groomed by Breitbart and the Steve Bannon and the and the billionaire types to attract young people, him being a young person himself. So he's out there spewing the worst sorts of bigotries, which are misogynist, transphobic, homophobic, of course racist, Islamophobic, and the whole the whole gamut. He is coming out for an Australian tour next month. He's coming to Melbourne, one of the cities. He's planning to speak at on December 4th. And his whole purpose, of course, is to coalesce the far right here and to recruit. That's his whole purpose. Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is organising... For months, members of neo-Nazi groups in Melbourne have been targeting inner-city Melbourne council meetings following the decision by both the Yarra and Moreland City Councils to discontinue celebrating 26th of January as Australia Day. It would appear that the corporate media, although in attendance, was not really interested, but not so a week ago when Labor Senator Sam Dastiari visited a hotel in Footscray prior to promoting his book in that suburb. On the line is Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Debbie, how do you assess what happened last Wednesday and the media reaction? The far right, in fact, um, neo-Nazi groups have been using a tactic of going directly into council meetings or pubs such as we witnessed last week with Sam Dastiari to disrupt and to intimidate and to terrorize. In the case of the Yera and the Moreland councils, they did that over both councils' decisions to drop January 26 as a day to celebrate. In the case of Sam Destiari last week, apparently they just went after him 
because he's Iranian, and they hurled names at him such as monkey and terrorist, and I, I understand that their next target is to be Sarah Hansen Young, I suppose, because of her stance on refugees. There's been a, a big difference in the way the media has treated both those situations. With the councils, I mean, there has been media coverage, for sure, but not in the way that it's happened with last week's incident with Sam Desteari. So it just appears as though the media, and I'm talking about the mainstream media, not the community media, such as Tuesday Home Time, but the mainstream media is consistently looking for basically the, the hits. So they're looking for something that has some element of violence in it, in this case, toward a senator. While they did cover the council disruptions, they didn't do it with the same intensity and diligence. The thing is that whether it be the councils or the episode last week with Sam Desteari, they then go to the neo-Nazi disruptors to interview them and give them the airplay, whereas those of us who are consistently organizing to stop them don't get that same airplay. Probably one example is when you're a council, put out an appeal to the community to defend their second council meeting where they were expecting a neo-Nazi raid again, and we were there, we were there defending, this is campaign against racism and fascism and no room for racism. The media did come along, but because the neo-Nazis were scared away, that showed the power of our organizing, the media wasn't all that interested in covering the event or talking to us. That's pretty much what we've come across in pretty much close to two years now of the organizing against the neo-Nazis and the far right. In a sense, though, Debbie, do you see this tactic of the far right a way to get those media interviews? Well, I suppose um, that could be a part of it. I'm sure that that's what Neil Erickson from Patriot Blue, who did that raid last week and the raids of the councils, that's certainly what he has in mind. What he does is he videos those episodes that he, that he does. He sends them to the media, and, of course, the media snaps them up. Mind you, I think that what is really the main objective of the likes of Neil Erickson and the other neo-Nazis who do this is that they are flexing their, their muscle. They are there to intimidate the, the community. And I think that that's the thing that we out here in the community should be taking very seriously is that they are out there coming to us. And while they've struck out at certain councils, certain local councils, or they've struck out at a certain parliamentary member, there's nothing that's going to be stopping them from 
striking us at whatever meetings we might be at or holding, I would imagine union meetings might be a target. So that's the thing that's the worry. But, yes, I, I, I do agree that that sensational approach to it is there to get that media coverage and therefore the platform. And also to recruit more to yes. their cause. And we think of them well, as just a few here and a few there and a, mm. a few more up the road, but it's not quite like that, is it? There are maybe not many groups, but there are groups forming all the time. Yes, they are. And, and you know, it's the Times that's doing this. It's as the, you know, economic collapse just collapses further and people are hurting more and more. And then while that's going on, when we have the likes of Trump in the United States or we have the likes of, you know, Hanson and Corey Bernardi and et al. here in Australia and really horribly atrocious government policies against groups of people like refugees, when all that's going on, then these groups that pop up, it's going to continue to happen. That's the thing where we in the community, whatever parts of communities we're in, need to really take that seriously and be organizing and coalescing together in stopping it because I found the events in Poland over the weekend as something where when you see 60,000 people taking the streets of Warsaw around white nationalist demands, it kind of shows where things can be taken from these events we're talking about now unless we stop them. And it's not just in Poland, is it? It's, it's spreading around to other countries. And we've only got to look at what's happening in the US mm. to be a bit fearful, well, very fearful of, of the turn of events. Yes, and this is where we do need to be looking beyond our borders to see where this is going, to see what can then be happening here. Because we are talking about a situation, an economic situation that is global, certainly, and we are also talking about these far-right and Nazi groups that talk to each other. They are in contact with each other. They emulate each other. And when you see that these times are emboldening these groups, whether they be across Europe or in the United States and seeing where that emboldening goes, then of course the Nazis in the far right here are watching all of that. You're right. Uh, We've got to have that global view. And of course those of us who are organizing against them, we're watching overseas too and we're watching what um, anti-fascist organizing is doing. We're taking heart in their victories. So it is a global thing. Another charmer coming to Australia early next month. He's got a Greek name, but mm. who is he really and, mm. and why is he coming? Okay. Yes, that's, um, and that's all very significant and timely, given everything we're talking about. It's Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, Milo Yiannopoulos is actually from England, but he is now U.S.-based. He is a far-right, he's part of that alt-right, as it's called, 
propagandist. He's a self-described troll. He comes out of the notorious Breitbart News over there in the United States, which is like a, an alt-right propaganda website platform that's managed by Steve Bannon. And, of course, listeners would know Steve Bannon probably as Trump's presidential campaign manager and former security advisor and, of course, being bankrolled by a hedge fund billionaire named Robert Mercer. So this is where Milo Yiannopoulos comes from. He's a total opportunist. He's a total there-to-promote-himself kind of person. He comes across as a very brash, anti-PC provocateur, but he's actually a very dangerous person. He's been groomed by Breitbart and the Steve Bannon and the, and the billionaire types to attract young people, him being a young person himself. So he's out there spewing the worst sorts of bigotries, which are misogynist, transphobic, homophobic, of course, racist, Islamophobic, and the whole, the whole gamut. He is coming out for an Australian tour next month. He's coming to Melbourne, one of the cities he's planning to speak at on December 4th. And his whole purpose, of course, is to coalesce the far right here and to recruit. That's his whole purpose. Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is organizing a protest while, when he's in Melbourne. In the United States, when he has tried to speak at campuses and other places, what's happened in places like Chicago and Phoenix is that those protests against him have been so huge because of the diversity of his targets and so on, that they've succeeded in shutting him down. And that's what we're going to have to do. And in fact, given what we were talking about before this, that kind of success here is going to be a message to the neo-Nazis that we've been talking about and the far right. So it's very important. December 4th is going to be very important in Melbourne. Do you know where he's planning to speak? That's no, a secret, but apparently it's being advertised for somewhere in the CBD, the central Melbourne. We wouldn't know till closer to the time. But that's where anybody who's listening who feels that they need to be out there, and frankly I think we all have to be out there, should get in touch with Campaign Against Racism and Fascism if they haven't already, and I can give a couple of contacts. The other thing, too, is that Campaign Against Racism and Fascism meets on the second and the fourth Tuesday each month, and so the next meeting is going to be tonight. It's at 6 o'clock, and the meetings are at Trades Hall. So it would be really, really wonderful for people to come along. We're concentrating, of course, on the organizing of the protest against Milo Yiannopoulos. And also just stay in touch with CARF. CARF is on Facebook, so just look up Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. And there is also a mobile number to um, send an, a, a text 
saying subscribe to, and that number is 0422-726-843. And you say subscribe? You say subscribe, and then you're going to get notifications. Okay, so that's the 4th of December. That's a Monday. Yes, that's correct. We're currently assuming it's probably going to be anywhere from 5 p.m., but again, that just remains to be seen. We just have to keep our antennae tuned. Okay, Debbie, I'll talk to you again. Definitely had a gremlin in there, but you heard it twice, most of it from Debbie Brennan from CARP. During the past couple of years, this program has covered the struggles of communities and their international supporters in both El Salvador and the Philippines against the destruction of lives and environment by projects of Melbourne-based mining company Oceana Gold, which includes a monthly rally outside their headquarters in Collins Street in Melbourne. Late last year, the International Centre for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID, a tribunal of the World Bank, awarded the government of El Salvador $8 million. But Oceana Gold has announced it will stay in El Salvador despite the fine and prohibition by the government of any metallic mining. Many believe working to ensure a change of government to allow the resumption of mining. But in the Philippines, the Oceanic Gold, Gold Mine in Didipio, 270 kilometres north of Manila on the island of Luzon, continues to wreak havoc on the indigenous peoples and their land as the mine expands even further. One of the international allies against mining by Oceanic Gold in both those countries is Mining Watch Canada and their research coordinator, Catherine Cummins, was in Melbourne last week and came into the studios here at 3CR to report on her recent visit to Didipio. But I first asked her about Mining Watch Canada, when the group began, and what were their aims and objectives. Mining Watch Canada was founded by a whole bunch of NGOs in Canada that were working on a range of issues around development, primarily in Canada and overseas. So these were organizations that were working with indigenous communities in Canada and then working in, in, the, in the third world, and we called developing countries. And they were finding increasingly that the work they were doing with communities was being threatened by uh, huge mines that were Canadian mines, both, both in Canada and, and overseas. And there was a recognition that there was a real need to create a Canadian organization, I mean, mining is such a huge part of our economy and, uh, you know, something like 75% of all the mining companies in the world are, are listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange and something like 60% have their headquarters in Canada. And so there's such a, we have such a huge footprint and such a huge responsibility around mining, but there wasn't an organization in Canada that specifically would focus on the human rights and the environmental impacts of the Canadian mining industry. And so in 1999, these organizations were able to get two years of funding. So we started with two years of funding, and um, that was for one full-time person and two half-time people. And we really didn't know if we were going to last beyond two years um, because it was a mammoth task for such a small organization. But here we are almost 18 years later and uh, still going along, and we're now up to five people, and it's still too big a task for such a small organization. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the thing that happened along the way was that we realized we could never take on the Canadian mining industry on our own. 
And so we built really strong coalitions, and uh, one of those is the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability. And that network has more than 30 organizations in it, and all we do in the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability is focus on mining. So now Mining Watch has sort of extended its reach through that network. How do you explain those high figures of 75% and 60%? Well, there's all kinds of provisions in Canada. I mean, first of all, I mean, I guess the the initial thing is that Canada has a very, very long history of mining. So, you know, as part of the British Empire, Canada was really seen as a resource nation for the British Empire. This is where the metals were going to come from, and this is where the wood was going to come from for ships and for for the empire. And so there's a very, very long history of mining in Canada. So there's a lot of expertise that's built up. We have almost all of our law firms work on mining. We have some very highly specialized law firms that work on mining. Plus, there's a huge support industry around mining. A lot of the equipment, um, the consulting firms, the financial firms work on mining and are specialized in mining, accounting firms that specialize in mining. But then also the Tronic Stock Exchange has provisions for mining companies that make it really beneficial for them to raise capital in Canada. And so it's also, um, you know, stock exchanges around the world compete with each other, and our stock exchange makes it very beneficial to operate in Canada. And so that's, uh, that's, those are all, all part of the reason. In recent years, is the mining mainly in Canada or is it overseas in the no, south? No, we have both. We, we have mining in Canada going on by um, not just Canadian mining companies but global mining companies. And then we have Canadian mining companies that are headquartered in Canada, raise capital in Canada, but operate uh, all over the world. Do you personally get involved with the, the, the mining companies working within Canada or is that someone else's job? That's someone else's job within my organization. So we have five staff now, and one person's job is entirely dealing with the mining that happens in Canada, very often on Indigenous land. And then I have Asia Pacific, and we have another person who does Africa and another person who does Latin America. Yes, I know that Latin America is not your area, but the proposed mine in El Salvador has been right at the front for many years now, and the El Salvadoran government is still battling against Oceania Gold. From your knowledge of, of what's been happening in El Salvador, could you just go through that and how that Mining Watch Canada has been involved in that project? Yeah, for sure. So the project in El Salvador was actually started by a Canadian mining company called Pacific Rim. And so that was the company that uh, did the initial exploration. And then around 2004, decided to seek permits to start mining. And, you know, in that time, there was so much opposition to this project going ahead. And and four activists were actually uh, killed in in the process of trying to uh, stop the company from going ahead. So it it was a very large struggle. And the reason it was such a large struggle is because the mine would have been very close to one of the major river systems in El Salvador, which is basically the, the main source of water for about half the population. This is a landlocked country, and water is a real problem in El Salvador, and especially with global warming, it's becoming worse. So the Lempa River was critical. And so people really organized to protect and save this river and the water system associated with it downstream. And so that was why there was so much opposition to the mine. And then um, people organized around 2004. The company started seeking the permits. And a number of years later, the El Salvadoran government came to the conclusion that the company had not met the environmental requirements of the regulations and declined the permits. 
And that then led in 2009 to Pacific Rim launching a lawsuit against the El Salvadoran government. It was for like over 300 million and then it went down eventually to 250 million. And this is what they call, you know, one of these investor state dispute mechanisms. So at an international level, this lawsuit was filed or this, this dispute um, mechanism was brought into action through the World, uh, a World Bank Tribunal. That caused, of course, a lot of grief because there was a lot of concern that if the El Salvadoran government lost, both the mine would go ahead, but also there would be a huge uh, payment that would that would be owed to this company. And it was, you know, in- incredibly uh, onerous. Uh, you, you think about it, you know, a, a country is doing what a, what a country is supposed to do is responding both to its own regulations, upholding its own regulations, but also responding to the democratic call of the people to protect a really critical watershed. And, you know, it's fully, should be fully in its rights, you would think, to decide not to let a mine go ahead if that mine is going to be so destructive and is so much opposed. And yet, you know, then the country found itself facing this, this tribunal. And luckily, late in 2016, the El Salvadoran government won. So, and this is after years and years and years of campaigning. This was an incredibly high profile issue who knows if if you know if it would have turned out differently if there hadn't been so much international attention and certainly all the work that was done by the activists here in melbourne where oceana gold is is headquartered was critical in this because in 2013 pacific rim the initial canadian company was bought out by oceana gold and oceana gold is a canadian australian company and you know certainly activists both in canada my colleague jen moore and others and activists here in, in australia worked very closely together to, you know, raise awareness about how unfair this process was with the El Salvadoran government, you know, sort of a sort of Damocles hanging over its head. Potentially this mine would go ahead and, and the government would have to pay $250 million to the company just for upholding its own regulations. So, uh, you know, thank goodness, uh, late in 2016, the El Salvadoran government actually won. And... Um, that was important, but it's not sort of the end of the story. And this is so often the case um, when there's a, you know, when an ore body has been discovered and, uh, you know, there's, there's money to be made. Companies rarely take no for an answer. And they hang on and they hang around and they basically are waiting for a new political situation or, you know, a shift in, in, of any sort that they can exploit. And so right now the struggle in El Salvador is to have Oceana Gold actually leave the company has, has started a few foundations that they're keeping going on the ground, and there's just a sense that the company is not actually accepting the ruling and accepting the will of the people of El Salvador and, and leaving. Yes, there is the campaign to get them out. There's also the campaign to recompense the, the families of those people who were killed and to actually find out what happened to them and why That's they right. were killed. That's right. That's right. So those, so those are the two air issues of area of struggle that are ongoing in El Salvador. One is around access to remedy for the families of those four activists that were killed. And the other is to get El Salvador, Oceana Gold to actually leave. <laughs> it, it was amazing because late in 2016, of course, the El Salvadoran government won this, this dispute uh, tribunal, which was great. And then uh, about six months later, on the 30th of March in 2017, the company actually banned all metal mining in the whole country. And that's the first country in the world to do this. So, you know, the writing should be on the wall for Oceana Gold, and they should respect the will of the people and actually leave. But there's a huge amount of stress about the fact that they haven't left and they don't seem to be willing to accept the will of the 
the government and the people. And as you said, elections are coming up in 2018. This is it, right? There's always... There's always elections and companies get involved in those elections and they support certain candidates and, you know, it's, a, it's, it's very uh, pernicious. And that's Catherine Cummins talking about Oceana Gold in El Salvador. And on the program next week, she'll be talking about Oceana Gold in Didipio in the Philippines. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. The increase in violence in Afghanistan has led the International Red Cross to reduce its operations after the worst year of attacks against its workers and many other agencies are assessing Afghanistan after 16 years of war and the cost of the US on the people of Afghanistan. Voices for Creative Nonviolence is a small peace group based in Chicago and they've also been forced to limit the number of people who visit to support Afghans living in Kabul. Brian Terrell is a co-coordinator of Voices and I spoke with him last week. Brian, you've visited Afghanistan many times since the invasion of that country by the US, but before we talk specifically about your latest visit, this is the first time I've spoken with you since Donald Trump took over the White House in January this year. And on the 21st of August, he promised to keep the war going without end. Can you comment on that? I don't want to diminish how frightening the situation is. On the other hand, one of the things that Donald Trump has done is taken a mask off of U.S. foreign policy. One example clearly is the drone program, which President Obama explained very effectively, very reassuringly that this is a program that is precise, surgical is another word he used. We find the people who mean us harm and we can remove them with the least amount of collateral damage, uh, near certainty that there will be no collateral deaths with each strike. And yet we know that uh, thousands of innocent people died. Most of the victims of the drones have been far away from any war zone and not people participating in any kind of aggression against the United States or any of its allies, but people going about their business who uh, appeared to be somebody who could be causing us some trouble someday. And now you have Donald Trump, who in his campaign famously said that the only way we're going to get to the terrorists is if we start going after their families. And he directly threatened to kill the children of the people who threaten us or are perceived to threaten us. So we have policies that are quite similar, but Donald Trump, the gloves are off. There's no euphemisms. We're, we're talking straight power concepts. Uh, another example is 
many people now are frightened. We've heard that Donald Trump is wanting to, uh, in the next uh, decade or so, spend a trillion dollars on upgrading the United States' nuclear weapons capacity. That's insane, and that is, you know, and it goes by the name to actually call it a life extension of nuclear weapons at a time when we can't give health care to all Americans. Uh, a trillion dollars in the life extension of nuclear weapons, and people are very afraid. But this is a program that Donald Trump actually is disingenuous for claiming credit for because it's one that came about under the uh, Obama administration, and people are scared now, but, but we really should have been scared five or six years ago when this first came up. Yeah, this is, this is a very frightening time. One of the things I'm most frightened of is that we blame Donald Trump for it all, and that when Donald Trump is gone, if we, if we survive him, that uh, we'll be so glad to have what's normal, what seems to be normal, even though what has been normal for the last decades have been actually perilous to the, to the planet. You maintain that the violence seen on American streets is a direct and inevitable result of the violence of your country's wars. Can you expand on that? Yes. One thing that is very real is the uh, weaponry that our police departments have. Now, um, even rural towns have tanks and armored personnel carriers. Recently, Jeff Sessions is bragging that he's going to get grenade launchers to police departments around the country. We have special weapons units, SWAT teams in most of our police departments, and uh, using what really are like the night raids in Afghanistan, the, the doors kicked down and everyone in the household handcuffed and put down on the floor and guns to their heads while the house is being searched. And statistics have been looked at with this, and most of the SWAT raids are being used to execute, to serve simple warrants and summonses. People who would, uh, before we had all this equipment, who used to be summonsed to court by getting a letter in the mail or somebody knocking on their door and handing over a piece of paper, are now having their homes invaded in the middle of the night and families terrorized. So this is the training and the arming that our police departments have, a very aggressive program by the Justice Department to subsidize cities who police departments hire combat veterans. And I do believe that people who've been in the military or veterans do need jobs, but they don't need jobs where they're taking guns into very conflicted neighborhoods in our cities. I think also the, the drone program has come home to our cities in a, in a very insidious way. Again, with, with Donald Trump the limits placed on the, the military, how they conduct their raids overseas have been loosened immensely. The terms of engagement are very, very loose today, even more than they were before. But under Obama, they considered, uh, as we were assured, that only combatants are being killed. The A combatant was defined by the Obama administration, and this is pretty close to a quote, is any male over 14 years old who is found in a strike zone, a drone strike zone, is deemed a combatant unless posthumously proven otherwise. And also the word imminent, where President Obama promised us that 
these strikes should only be made against people who were deemed uh, an imminent threat to the safety of the United States. But the Justice Department had a white paper where they explained that in order to make the determination that someone is an imminent threat, they do not, the United States does not need to have any specific intelligence or information linking that person to any particular action. So, from 7,000 and more miles away, the determination is being made to kill people, mostly young men, mostly and all young men of color, who are being killed not because of what they're doing. They're not being interrupted in any kind of nefarious or violent act, but because of the, the words they use for a signature strike are patterns of behavior, that somebody is acting in a certain way. A young man in Libya or Afghanistan, Somalia, looks like somebody, dresses like somebody, hangs out with people, is in a certain neighborhood at a certain time. They're being deemed threats because of that, and they're being killed. And that is much like the profiling going on in our streets, where now it's uh, police officers who are looking through the windshield of their cruisers, and they're making determinations based not on what somebody is doing right now, but on young men because of how they appear and how they dress. And that's clearly the war coming home. Many people justify the war in Afghanistan and the war on terror in general as fighting them over there so we don't have to fight them here. But that's always, a, uh, that's always false. It never works. The, the, the violence comes home, and the and we see with the acts of terrorism that have taken place in the United States and in Europe and other places. You know, these are the results of what's happening of our actions. It's it's blowback on our uh, the violence that's being perpetrated on communities in other countries. You've been campaigning against drones for many years now. Have you been able to speak with former drone operators to find out what that work has done to them? Oh, yes. Um, I've had some, some great opportunities, and there's some very courageous, courageous young men and women who've been speaking out. And uh, one of these men who I talked to just this spring, Brandon Bryant, one thing I talked to him about is that it struck me. I heard a... Uh, infantry veteran who had just come back from Afghanistan and as much as he hated the war and the politics of it he explained that he had killed people in Afghanistan he killed insurgents who were shooting at him and his friends and he said he didn't lose sleep over it because he didn't uh, because he was in danger and his friends were in danger and somebody's shooting at me and my friends and I'm shooting back and he's sorry that people died, but he, the words used, he wasn't losing sleep. But Brandon Bryant was say, telling me that he does lose sleep. And I heard him earlier describe one of the uh, first times he killed somebody with a drone. Is he was following somebody in Afghanistan for days and days. The, the, the drone will often be surveilling an area or a person for many hundreds of hours before the order to strike comes. And that order can come from people in the intelligence community, other officers, sometimes even other screeners who are other young people who've never been to places like Afghanistan who are 
watching what's happening on the the ground and determining who a threat is. And Brandon Bryant described watching these two men for days and days and days and seeing them going about their daily activities. And finally the order came to kill them. And when he shot his missile, shot the missile from the Hellfire missile from the drone, he watched in pretty high-definition video of the, their bodies being torn apart. And he said he didn't know anything from what he had seen. He'd seen no indication that these men were a danger to the United States. But he did see enough to know they were good dads. And he did lose sleep over that because he saw an irony that the, that the, the safety of the distance actually makes the psychic spiritual damage of, of these acts all that more acute. I don't believe in killing anyone for any purpose at all, but I really realize a huge difference between killing somebody who is a danger to you and your friends and who's actually shooting at you and then killing someone who is thousands of miles away who can't hurt you, who's done you no harm and can do you no harm, that uh, the people who are committing these acts, I think they don't have the uh, comfort of knowing that uh, they did this just to save their own lives or to save the lives of their friends. So this has you know, been very, very damaging to, it's uh, good for politicians, but it's been very bad for the drone operators. You've been to Afghanistan many times now. Have you spoken to men who have been targeted by those drones who been followed for days and days and just the fear of knowing that there's a a thing up in the air there and any time you could be killed. Yes, and the city of Kabul, the population has, since the United States invaded, has increased fivefold and is increasing very, very fast as we speak. And the town city is terribly overcrowded and as much as You know, we know just last Friday there was another uh, suicide bomber at a mosque. And as dangerous as life is in the city of Kabul, it's not as frightening as living out in the countryside. Many of the people we've talked to, the refugees, have spoken about the the drones being uh, one of their motives for leaving their homes. It's just not knowing when there's going to be when there's going to be a strike. Uh, That and the the Taliban and other other uh, insurgencies. And I've also had the opportunity, sadly, to talk to people who are the victims in one refugee camp. My first visit in 2010, uh, just as we were beginning to know what these drones were and what they were doing, we were talking to a family in a refugee camp, and they were telling us about a drone strike that had struck their village and killed several members of their family, forcing them to flee. And as we were talking, there was a uh, little girl, like seven or eight years old, who was sitting on the lap of one of my colleagues, and the uh, an older man, an uncle or a grandfather, was talking about how this child had lost her parents in that strike and then pulled up her sleeve and saw that she had lost her arm below the elbow as well. This was a child. One of the statistics in Afghanistan, like in many you know, places of, they call it a developing world, but where not much development is going on. The, the average age now, uh, the median age in Afghanistan is just over 18 years old. 
So this war was going on, has been going on for more than 16 years. We know, too, that there were no Afghans involved at all in the events of 9-11-2001 that supposedly precipitated this war. And even so, the majority of people in that country were either not born or were just babies in their mother's arms when this war started. And, you know, they believe that they're really still being punished for something that they never did. And this cannot uh, be, you know, it's, it's just, it's cannot be tolerated. But was 9-11 really the reason for U.S. going into Afghanistan, or were there other reasons? Oh, there are other reasons that the United States has been involved there since really before 1979, before the Russian invasion, which uh, some American officials from the Carter administration way back have boasted that they are arming the Mujahideen, the fighters, who many of whom became the warlords who are running the country now, and many became the Taliban, that they induced a Russian invasion, which helped bring about the end of the Soviet Union. Their story is, and I think that gets to what what the United States is finding intolerable, is from way back in 1979, Afghanistan had a uh, has a border with what was once the Soviet Union, the republics of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, etc. And they had friendly relations with their Russian neighbors, and that was not tolerable to the United States. Today, the uh, you know, there's a, there's a border that, the, that Afghanistan has with Iran, and the influence of Iran in that country was, you know, being, we're being told is something very nefarious, but they're the next door neighbor. That's who they should be getting along with. The uh, Ghani government that, that's in charge of Afghanistan now, which has very little credibility with the people, but uh, you know, President Trump was threatening to pull out troops, but if, but that government will surely fall without it. And President Afghani said this, we're sitting on enormous wealth, he told Trump. In, and this was back in May at Riyadh when they, they were meeting. Says, Why aren't the American companies in this instead of China? So the, the threat of that, that Afghanistan will, if the U.S. troops leave Afghanistan, will start trading with China was one of the things that inspired President Trump then to say we're going to, the war will continue. That's good for Asif Ghani. <laughs> it's uh, not good for many other people in Afghanistan. Afghanistan also shares a small border with China. You know, these are the people that they should be getting along with. And, and a, a free and peaceful Afghanistan that has a government that's responsive to the needs of its people is not going to be beholden the U.S. interest is going to be looking out for its own, and with the mineral wealth in a strategic area that it's in right there, so close to Russia, China, right between Iran and Pakistan, you know, having this war continue is, is what's in the American interest uh, as it's interpreted by the people in charge of our government. And this is not a, uh, an effort to bring resolution a war and to bring peace and development to a country, but it's to, I'm afraid that it's to continue the war because the war continuing, spending on weapons and uh, assuring access to mineral wealth, 
is what's in the interest of the American people, but not to, for the people of Afghanistan. This is Tuesday Hometown on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Brian Terrell, who's a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, about his most recent visit to Afghanistan. You said that the population of Kabul has greatly increased. Where are the people coming from? What part of Afghanistan? How do they get there? And what awaits them when they arrive in Kabul? I'll tell you, they're, they're coming from all the provinces. And right now, there is this starting last year, there have been, I think in the last year, there have been more than 700,000 refugees from outside of the country who've been returned. And Pakistan and Iran are both uh, involuntarily returning refugees. I know that uh, the United Kingdom and Germany and Sweden, I believe, are all um, taking away the refugee status of Afghans and repatriating them. So they, they think the next year another three million might be coming and many of them will end up in, in Kabul, which was once a beautiful city, I'm sure, but long before I saw it. Population going up, it was just a few hundred thousand when the Russians invaded, and it was slowly increasing, but about a million 2001, and now it's five or six million and climbing. But the, the living conditions there are just horrendous. People are building... The city is, of course, packed, and it's a city uh, some 6,000 feet up in the Hindu Kush mountains and surrounded by more mountains. It's in a bowl, and all around, every visit I've made since my first time in 2010, I've seen the uh, city crawling up the mountains in all four directions, higher and higher and higher, as people are just building, you know, using... Uh, Sometimes chipping crates if they're lucky, or sometimes just uh, bricks made out of mud and straw. Sometimes in tents, just building the city, moving up and up higher. Uh, the, uh, there's a terrible water crisis. The Kabul River is nothing left of it but a sewer going down the middle of the city. The um, water table is going down a, a meter and a half every year, and has been for some years. You know, it's a city that, you know, it's more than pushed to its limits. What's the economy that keeps it going? Well, one, one thing that's going on is the, the agriculture. Afghanistan was a country that, that uh, exported food to the region, and now most of the food that they eat is coming from, from other places. My first visit, there was someone from the Ministry of Agriculture who said, was complaining about the government policies that... Uh, meant that a crate of melons would rot on the side of the road, he said, while a uh, shipment of opium poppies could be shipped to the other side of the planet. And this is true, you know, the, 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 the price of heroin in the world has never been lower, and the production of opium poppies in Afghanistan has never been, been higher, and it's very difficult for someone to make a living in agriculture doing anything else these days. So that's one of the things driving people into the city. One remarkable statistic that just came out a couple of years ago, the, the, the Special Inspector General for the 
Afghan reconstruction, made a study about how much not only the, the war has cost, it's in the hundreds of billions, but the money that has gone for the reconstruction of Afghanistan, and that's more money than was the entire Marshall Plan that rebuilt Western Europe after World War II has gone into the, you know, in real dollars, gone into the reconstruction of Afghanistan. But you see hardly any of it. You know, it's the, uh, and hospitals, the USAID had claimed to have been built and fully funded. You know, the inspector general went looking for these hospitals and could not find most of them. They didn't exist at all. They were ghost hospitals that the, the money was simply siphoned off. Uh, there's plenty of graft and corruption in Afghanistan, but by far the greatest amount of money was um, taken by American corporations who were contracting and subcontracting, you know, building up these roads and hospitals and schools that, that simply were never built or never finished. So really the, the reconstruction has been just another uh, exploitation, another act of violence against the Afghan people. How many went with you this time, and, and how safe is it for you to travel to Kabul? Well, this time I went by myself, and that's what we, how we travel there these days. My colleagues with Voices of Creative Nonviolence and, and, and some other people who we know are going there. It, it's not safe for foreigners. The uh, embassy staffs are almost all the Western embassies that are there. The, their uh, workers are confined to their compounds. The U.S. embassy workers can only travel by helicopter, even the uh, mile or so from the airport to the U.S. embassy, which is one of the places that's most in the hands of the uh, Afghan government, is deemed unsafe to travel. So we we go one at a time, sometimes two at a time, and keep a pretty low profile, uh, not to be a danger to ourselves and to the, our friends who are hosting us. The highlight of this trip was the Afghan Peace Volunteers had a conference called the Road to Peace, where they invited young people, there are 34 provinces in Afghanistan, and 24 of them were, were represented. It was a very joyful, very hopeful gathering. And some of these young people, though, had, I'd come from the United States, and it takes a very long time to get to Afghanistan. But some of the people who are coming from only a few hundred kilometers away were, took as long to get there, get to Kabul, as it did for me, because they couldn't take the main roads, the different roadblocks by the different uh, factions and robbers and uh, the roads being uh, impassable anyway, just from years of neglect, the, the travel was very much more difficult for some of these young folks than it was for me. And uh, just the courage of them to uh, you know, be taking that trip was uh, uh, inspiring in itself. And these are young people who have known nothing about war, death and destruction their whole lives. Yes, yeah, this has uh, uh, been going on since uh, before most of them were born, and I was very, very impressed with them. They know this isn't normal. This is not how it should be, and I'm also very, you know, almost in awe of their concern for 
people in other parts of the world and their concern for the environment is one thing that there, there was a lot of discussion about and even in particular about uh, a session of brainstorming of what could be done about water situation in Kabul and they came up with some very uh, good ideas. Some of them would be you know, best practices for any community at this time in our planet's history that, you know, to, to adopt. But they really, the, the reality is that uh, the city of Kabul is going to keep growing and people are going to keep digging unregulated wells and they're not going to be treating sewage and the garbage is going to be piling up all around them and people are going to be burning plastic bottles to keep warm at night until the war ends. So I think these courageous young people are doing their part and going to be doing their part, but it's for those of us in places like the United States and, and Australia as well and the other so-called partner countries to demand that this war end. Well, I was going to say in 2001, October 2001, Dick Cheney, who is Vice President of the United States, then predicted that the war that just started in Afghanistan would spread to uh, a lot of other countries, and he said he didn't expect it to end ever, at least not in our lifetimes, and he said it was the war would become a permanent part of the way that we live. And I think to a very large extent, it has become normalized, and we've accepted it. And in the United States, anyway, here we have uh, great protests going on with the uh, ban for uh, travel from Muslim countries. Hundreds of thousands of people spontaneously went to United States international airports to protest that. And the protests uh, on various issues about uh, other issues about immigration the, uh, and, and the issues of, around the environment. There's lots of occasions uh, since Trump has come into office protesting what he's been doing on these very crucial issues, but very few people coming out to protest against the war, this ongoing war, which is really what's behind a lot of these other social problems the United States has. And again, in terms of... of uh, getting on streets to protest uh, racial killings and the killings of young black men in our streets. But young men of color are being killed you know, similarly in places like Afghanistan and Yemen, Pakistan. I think what I'm trying to impress upon people is that we need to have that outrage about the war. Maybe this is the, some of the worst violence of the war is the fact that people here in other parts of the world have just you know, said, well, this is how things are, and we can't change it. You know, it's become, Dick Cheney was right, that, that this would become a part of the way that we live, and we can't let that happen. Finally, Brian, I would imagine that your young friends in Kabul are very happy to see you when you come. Oh, yeah, I think that's one of the things when people ask why we keep making these trips. It, I'll explain in, in a way it's a, uh, it's a social visit. You know, it's very, very important to make keep these connections for young people in Afghanistan. Their options to travel are very, very limited. It's, it, it is what uh, I think these visits for me. It's the thing that gives me hope. You know, to, to uh, see people with who seem to have very, very few choices, seem to be have very little reason to hope. Who are the ones who are being the most uh, creative 
in thinking about solutions and the ones who are the most hopeful. We do have a lot to, to learn from them. Thank you, Brian. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, uh, thank you so much, Jan, for wanting to talk with me about these things. I think it's, you know, it's uh, very important for us you know, here and in Australia that we not let this war disappear from our consciousness and not, not to accept it as normal. We need to be outraged and express that outrage, and we need to find others, other solutions, other ways of solving our problems in these wars. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And that was Brian Terrell, who's the, one of the co-coordinators of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And that's all for me. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4. Cut and done by law coming up in a moment. Bye for now.